Wake up. It's the Saturday morning podcast. Let mom and dad sleep in and come back with me to the 80s. Let's grab a bowl of golden puffs or apple cinnamon Cheerios and flip on the tube. I've got the TV guide and hours of nothing to do. My name is Chris and I love all the Saturday morning cartoons. When I was a kid, I lived for Saturday mornings. Now that I'm an adult, I want to relive all those great shows and see where they came from. Let's take a deep dive back to the 80s and see what's waiting. Rewind! What do you get if you take a village of mythical creatures and put them underwater? You get one of two things. You either get a whole village of dead Smurfs or the Snorks. Premiering on NBC in the fall of 1984, the Snorks told the story of an underwater community led by Governor Wetworth. The Snorks were brightly colored, had a snorkel on their heads, and lived in Snorkland. Let's get into the silverfish and take a deep dive into the saltwater world of the Snorks. In September 1984, NBC launched The Snorks in the 8 a.m. time slot, kicking off the start of the Saturday morning cartoons. The print ads and comic books kept the show mysterious. It featured a child snorkeling and encountering the colorful creatures. NBC described their new show like this. For the next half hour, you explore the fantastic undersea world where you'll uncover incredible creatures only known as The Snorks. These sea creatures live in Snorkland, a village deep in the ocean. In the lore of the series, the Snorks made contact with humans in 1634. The Snorks that made it to the surface witnessed a battle between a ship of the Spanish Armada and pirates. The Armada ship was destroyed and the captain wound up in the water. This is where the captain made contact with the Snorks. The sea creatures saved the captain's life. Once rescued, the captain expressed his gratitude towards the Snorks by writing about them in his log. Of course, no one believed the captain, chalking up his Snork encounters to delirium after the shipwreck and dramatic battle against the pirates. But they exist, a whole community of them, and that community is made up of a whole lot of big personalities. All-Star Seaworthy is smart, brave, known to be athletic, and yellow in color. The series primarily revolves around All-Star, a student of science and an inventor. When he gets an ocean, his belt buckle spins, giving him a Seabright idea. He's known for being generous, and usually the group's leader went on adventures. In true inventor fashion, he's oblivious to the fact that Casey Kelp likes him. Demetrius Finster, known as Dimmy to all who meet him, is orange. 
Demi is the comedian of the group and considers himself a fighter. It's said that his fighting ends with awkward results. He learned ballet from Daphne, who is considered to be his love interest. Demi doesn't like being called by his full name, opting for the nickname. Though I'd think his full name would be better than being called Dimwit, which is how Junior addresses him. Casey Kelp, a pink-skinned snork with red pigtails, is smart and kind-hearted. She is a defender and will step in if she sees a snork or other sea creature getting bullied. She's Allstar's girlfriend and Daphne's best friend. She's not afraid to rush in when danger's around, making her one of the bravest snorks in the land. Daphne Gilfin is coral-skinned and obsessed with her looks. And maybe she's got a right to be, considering she once won Miss Junior's Snorkland. Despite the vanity, she's got a good heart and is caring for the others in her community. She's best friends with Casey, but also has a variety of friends she's willing to share fashion tips with. Wellington Wetworth Jr., simply known as Jr., is distinguished by his orange skin and blue hair. His father is the governor of Snorkland, and Jr. is perceived as being a rich snob. In his youth, Jr. was friends with All-Star, but the two had a falling out where Jr. became jealous of All-Star and they became competitive towards one another. Tudor Shelby is green-skinned and communicates with toots and beeps and cannot talk with words. His condition is not genetic as his parents can talk. Despite being different, Tudor's friends accept him and seem to understand him through the language barrier. Tudor's also been known to communicate with various sea life. Corky is a dedicated defender of Snorkland and is an orange-skinned patrol officer. Described as a workaholic, Corky cruises the village in a multifunctional submarine. Despite being a member of authority, he tends to get along with everyone. He's got a ton of medals for bravery and displays them proudly in his home. Aki is All-Star's red octopus. He once belonged to Junior, but the snob abandoned him. He soon found a home with All-Star, but has not forgiven Junior. In fact, Aki goes out of his way to chase and embarrass Junior whenever he can. Aki is a musician and has played sold-out concerts in Snorkland. Because of his abandonment issues, he is very loyal to All-Star for giving him a home. Freddie Munnickendam, cartoonist, businessman, and producer, had a working relationship with Peo, creator of the Smurfs. In response to the popularity of the Smurfs, Munnickendam saw the potential in creating a knockoff. Partnering with cartoonist Nick Brocka, he set out to create the Snorks. Munnickendam became the head of SEPP International, a branch of Dupois, then editor of the Smurfs comic book and was responsible for the merchandising of comic book characters. Because he worked closely with Peo on Smurf merchandising, he had an inside view of what went into comic books. In 1974, Munnickendam with partner Nick Broca created a Snorks comic book in Belgium. When the Smurfs were tapped to appear on American TV, on Saturday morning no less, Munnickendam brokered the deal between Dupois, Peo, animation studio Hanna-Barbera, and Network NBC. For his efforts, he was given the title of executive producer. He would go on to have a hand in 72 Smurfy episodes. In 1981, the Smurfs were a huge success with American audiences. When something is successful, it's not uncommon for imitators to come along to get their piece of the financial pie. Monnickendam, Hanna-Barbera, and NBC all knew this would be inevitable. Their solution? 
they would again team up and rip off their own creation. In this case, the Snorks comic book my Nick and Dam created would be the basis of the show. It was put into development in 1981 and a three minute pilot was created. The Snorks were ready for public consumption by the fall of 1984. Fred Silverberg, then president of NBC, had been a champion of the Smurfs. He would show the same support for their underwater counterpart. He must have believed that there was a future in the Snorks. The new show was placed in the 8 o'clock time slot, kicking off the Saturday morning block of programming. The Snorks were the lead-in for all the greatness that followed. The time slot assigned to the Snorks may have contributed to their success. Competition on CBS and ABC paled next to NBC. ABC challenged the Snorks with their show, The Puppy's Great Adventures. Puppy was based on a series of ABC weekend specials and centered on the adventures of Petey the Dog and his lonely orphan pal Tommy. The Eye ran reruns of Shirt Tales, a show that had already ended. It's also a fascinating choice considering the run of Shirt Tales had originally occurred on NBC. It was old programming versus new. If Saturday morning was known for one thing, it was that it devoured content. On all the networks, there was a strong push to have a proven winner or to create something new. Whatever wasn't working got the axe. When the Snorks aired, it can be argued they were a proven winner, or at least were engineered with a winning formula in their DNA. With the power of NBC, talent of Hanna-Barbera, and guided by producer Freddie Menachendam, the Snorks were groomed to be the next big thing. Now all they had to do was assemble the perfect cast. While the Snorks appear to be an ensemble, it is clear that All-Star Seaworthy is at the center of it all. Behind All-Star is Michael Bell, a Brooklyn-born actor known for playing Duke on G.I. Joe and a variety of others. Bell was a staple at Hanna-Barbera, appearing on many of their shows during the 70s and 80s. He played Zan on Super Friends and also appeared in Captain Caveman and Scooby-Doo. Along with his credit on the Snorks, he was playing double duty at the time on another show about a set of mythical creatures. Bell was the voice of Handy, Grouchy, and Lazy Smurfs on The Smurfs. While he was Duke on G.I. Joe, he also played a character named Duke on an ABC Weekend Special. And he did additional voices on The Dukes. Was Michael Bell the Duke of voice actors? Possibly. Brian Cummings, who voiced Demi, was a relative newcomer to the world of cartoons in 1984. Starting in voice work just three years prior, Cummings soon lent his vocals to Richie Rich and the Little Rascals. Most of his work up to this point was listed as additional voices. With the Snorks, Cummings was a part of the main cast. B.J. Ward, the voice of Alter's love interest Casey Kelp, came to Hollywood from Delaware and New York. Ward has worked as a voice actress since 1960. In the early 80s, she was Scarlet on G.I. Joe and, like Brian Cummings, worked on the animated Little Rascals show. During this time, she also voiced Fanny Frog in the Frogger segments of Saturday Supercade. Nancy Cartwright, hailing from Dayton, Ohio, voiced Daphne Gilfin. Cartwright was known for playing Richie Rich's girlfriend Gloria and appeared in live-action movies and TV of the time. She was in the It's a Good Life segment of Twilight Zone the movie and appeared on Fame and Cheers, two well-known shows of that time. 
She landed the role of Kip Kangaroo on Shirt Tales and would later voice Kimberly on Space Ace, part of Saturday Supercade on CBS. Barry Gordon, born in Massachusetts, was a successful child actor and singer in the 50s and 60s. At the age of six, he recorded the song Nothing for Christmas. He was the youngest performer to hit the Billboard chart with the song landing at number six. He acted in many of the shows of the time with the likes of Jackie Gleason, Danny Thomas, and Jack Benny. At the age of 30, Gordon went back to school and majored in political science. He then went on to Loyola Law School and received his JD in 1991. Gordon even became the longest-serving president for the Screen Actors Guild, holding the office for a seven-year stretch. In 1984, the time the Snorks aired, he was on Pac-Man, The Mighty Orbots, and Pole Position. Frank Welker voiced Tudor and Aki on the Snorks. They were two characters who couldn't speak but made character-identifiable sounds that Welker was the master at. It's been said that Welker is the go-to voice actor for animal sounds. In 1984, he wasn't just on television, he was the voice of villainous Stripe in Gremlins. Rumor has it that he was up for the role of Gizmo, but recommended friend Hallie Mandel for the iconic role instead. Rounding out the cast was Rob Paulson as Corky the Patrolman. Paulson, like others in the cast, appeared in G.I. Joe. At the time the Snorks was put together, his career too was just starting. Looking back at the cast, maybe Hanna-Barbera wanted fresh voices. Perhaps their regular stable of actors were tied up on all the series they had in production at that time. Whatever the case, the Snorks brought together a cast of reliable actors who brought life to Snorkland. The main cast wasn't alone in the task. The guest cast brought dimension to the friends and enemies of the Snorks. The visitors to Snorkland are an eclectic mix of well-known voice actors and actors not too well-known for their voice work. Performing as inventor Dr. Gallo Seaworthy and All-Star's uncle was Clive Ravel. To original Star Wars fans everywhere, he was known as the Emperor in The Empire Strikes Back. In later releases of that film, his performance was removed and replaced with Ian McDermott, who played the Emperor in Return of the Jedi and the prequels. He's all over 80s TV in guest appearances in shows like The Facts of Life, The Love Boat, and The Fall Guy. I think the best credit he's got is for a 1984 TV movie called, get this, The Hoboken Chicken Emergency. I mean, come on, what's that even about? Is it on DVD? Can I watch it? Can I do a Patreon commentary about it? I don't know, but I'm going to try to find out. On the flip side of Gallo Seaworthy is his brother, Dr. Strange Snork, voiced by René Aubergenois. The actor originated the role of Father Mulcahy in the 1970 Robert Altman movie, M.A.S.H. But Aubergenois may be best remembered from the 80s as the snobbish Clayton Endicott III from Benson. He also lent his voice to other Hanna-Barbera productions, such as The Jetsons and The Smurfs. The King of Camp and Confetti, Rip Taylor, was also on hand providing additional voices. One can almost see Taylor, with all of his manic energy, tossing confetti in the studio as he recorded his lines. It's interesting to note that Taylor played the title character in the surreal animated series, Here Comes the Grump. That series cast Taylor as a cross between a demon and a dwarf and had princesses and dragons and aired in 1969. 
Roger C. Carmel and Gene Vanderpil also provided additional voices for an episode. For those of the Star Trek persuasion, Carmel is best remembered for his two live-action appearances as Harry Mudd on the original Star Trek. Vanderpil should be familiar to Hanna-Barbera fans as Wilma Flintstone, formerly Wilma Slaghoople. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey there, baby. Listen to this. There's a new film for the Kodak disc. The new disc film makes you look so fine. Makes you look so sharp. Really lets you shine. You ought to be in pictures. That's why I'm gonna get you with the Kodak disc. Hey, baby, now Kodak's got a new baby, too. New Kodak Color VR disc film for better, clearer color pictures. Oh, yeah. You got so much style with that silly old smile. I'm gonna get you with the Kodak disc. Coolers are very big with some people, ha, ha, ha. But at times they're just too heavy, and you get a burning desire for a taste like 7-Up. Just imagine, light, crisp, clean. If you're dying for refreshment, don't sweat it. Drop everything. Rethink your drink. I can't believe it. <laughs> See for yourself. It's for real. <laughs> don't you feel good about 7-Up? Sugar. My kids eat too much sugar. I'm in the same boat. Well, if less sugar is what you want, just switch from your peanut butter to nutritious Skippy. Oh, and that there's no difference in peanut butters. Sure is. No peanut butter is better for kids than nutritious Skippy. And of all the leading national brands, only creamy Skippy has half the added sugars. Half the added sugars? That's great. Tastes great, too, Mom. Yeah. For good nutrition, no peanut butter is better than Skippy. Right, Skipper. <laughs> What's a snork? It's a... Um... Um... We're the snorks, and we're new! Tomorrow morning on NB Undersea! That's NBC. If you watched the premiere of the snorks, the date was September 15th in 1984. Ronald Reagan was the President of the United States. America was listening to What's Love Got To Do With It by Tina Turner, the number one song in the land. Moviegoers went to the theaters to see Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd in Ghostbusters. Prince Harry was born to Prince Charles and Lady Diana. Catherine Bach and George Burns at the age of 88 were on the cover of TV Guide with the captions, Lessons I Learned from TV. If you were a kid in 1984, maybe you got up early and got yourself breakfast. Maybe you had a new cereal like a bowl of C-3PO's or Cinnamon Toast Crunch. In the opening, we find the Snork Village, Snorkland. Looks like a great place to live. The Snorks are dancing and playing and riding carousels. There's actually an octopus carousel and the Snorks are riding seahorses. Now the Snorks are acting like pogo sticks, bouncing on their snorkel heads. What is this? It's all bright and confusing. Did I do acid? The Snorks have formed bands and run around in submarines. I'm actually alarmed that they can play instruments underwater. Can they really hear the guitars? Doesn't the water muffle it? I would bet that no one in Snorktown has a recording contract. So, Journey to the Source starts as you would expect for a show with mythical creatures who live underwater with a space shuttle launching into space from the surface of the Earth. Then, cut to Snorkland as a gaggle of snorks run off to hear Governor Wetworth at the Steam Festival. One of the dangers of being underwater is that a fish could run off with your written speech at any moment, and that happens to Governor Wetworth. 
The festival, set in a huge clamshell, officially opens when a mustache snork turns on a pump, but the pump loses pressure and there's no steam for the steam festival. You know what saves the day when there is no steam at a steam festival? Funnel cakes and churros. If I went to the alfalfa festival but there is no alfalfa, I'd be okay with a churro. So all is not lost. Does anyone know if churro fest is a thing? Never mind, I'll, I'll google it later. All-Star and his dad, Mustache Seaworthy, head to the steam plant as the governor postpones the festival and fish nibble at his nose. All-Star and his dad find the problem. There is no steam in the steam stream. No steam in the steam stream? Is this the gleam of a dream that I deem to undo the seams of these snork teams? Anyways, Mustache Seaworthy says that he needs to tell the council of the steam stream situation. Reporting to the council, we find this is a bizarre shadow council where you can't even see your elected officials. Just dark figures, colored hands, and sets of eyeballs that collectively work together to govern Snorkland from up high. The government says that the problem just needs to be fixed or the governor will be blamed. So it really is a shadow council, the snorks behind the scenes pulling all the snork strings. Also, having a kid show that explores the underwater politics of Snorkland at just over three minutes into the episode is pure genius. Surely the political intrigue of the snorks is what made the Star Wars prequels palatable for a whole generation of kids. The council adjourns with the order to fix the problem and to see Galio Seaworthy, who is All-Star's uncle. All-Star and friends are on their way to see Uncle Dr. Galio. They pass traffic jams where people are trying to get steam, but everyone is out, just like the fuel shortage of the 1970s. Is this the work of the Trade Federation? Could be. They look like snorks. At Uncle Dr. Galio's lab, the doctor says that the source of the steam must be blocked. This steam stream dream team will take the submarine to the source, of course, to clear the blockage. Galio says it's a dangerous situation. All-Star counters that without steam, the snorks are all dead. Having a 13-episode commitment to NBC means this cannot be true. As ordered by the Shadow Council, Governor Wetworth is doing something to solve the problem. He's dictating a letter to Galio, ordering him to solve the problem. Whiny Son Jr. offers to deliver the letter personally, but Jr. isn't interested in helping his dad. He wants to get into Galio's lab to find a solution to all this. Is he going to help Snorkland? No, he just wants the 5,000 pearl reward for fixing the problem. <clears throat> All-Star and crew are going to board the Silverfish, Galio's submarine. Tudor finds the... Blurble, 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 the blurble, blurble. Tudor finds the blurble an untested machine that puts air in balloons. <coughs> Meanwhile, Junior shows up at Galio's lab and lets himself in. Mean meanwhile, Galio and the Dream Team test out the Silverfish and the Blurble. Junior finds the devices, assumes that this will fix everything. Junior finds the devices, assumes this will fix everything, and that they are left here for him to use. What an ego. All-Star and Company board the Silverfish unaware that Junior is on board. But Junior freaks the F out and is found and released by Aki, the octopus. The ride starts to get dangerous. Daphne cries out that there is a disturbance. A disturbance in the source? Why does that sound familiar? Holy leaping lipids, it's the source and it's a volcano. 
The closer they get, the more turbulence there is. Oh no, the seams of the submarine are busting open. Water's everywhere. New guy's in the corner puking his guts out. Blah! Continuing his freakout, Junior starts whining to go home and randomly presses buttons. He presses so many buttons that the yellow light on the sub-dash starts to blink wildly. And the submarine starts to spin out of control. The submarine crashes in the source, everyone is incinerated, and Snorkland freezes, everyone dies. Just kidding. While performing wildly erratic maneuvers to a disco beat, the silverfish gets caught in kelp. Hey now, All-Star, get your game on and go EVA. Which he does, and he cuts the ship loose. He also manages to cut himself loose as well. All-Star is not lost as Aki grabs him and retracts him back into the silverfish. From a porthole, the snorks see the problem with the source. There's a metal object lodged in it. Turns out to be the booster rocket from the opening scene. Preparing the grappling hook, they latch onto the rocket, but it's too heavy to pull out. They turn on the blurble machine, dislodge the rocket, and pat themselves on the back for a job well done. Back in Snorkland, Mustache Seaworthy tells his friend Charlie to go to church and pray for a miracle. And at that exact moment, the steam floods in and air fries their booties. The machines come to life, gears spin, and steam, sweet, sweet steam, pours in all over Snorkland. And all those people who attended the festival are still there, despite being told that the festival was cancelled. If Disneyland closed down, is it cool if we just hang around? I swear there's gotta be a churro cart that they're all huddled around, it's, it, it, it's the only thing that's gonna keep them there. Back on the Silverfish, Junior goes on and on about saving Snorkland and the 5,000 Pearl reward. All-Star and Gang say it's not fair, he'll get the whole reward that it should go to Dr. Gallio. Junior blackmails Gallio, saying if he doesn't get the pearls, he'll tell the council about the submarine, which would be a bad thing for some reason. Are they illegal? Who knows? Helping Gallio to fix the silverfish, All-Star laments that it wasn't fair Junior got all the pearls, but Gallio knows that Junior deserves what's coming to him. Junior appears before the Shadow Council to collect his reward, but it turns out that whoever fixed the source, whoever was the hero of the hour that kept all the snorks from dying, will be fined 5,000 pearls and has to serve 20 years in the salt mines for going beyond the limits. Upon hearing this, Junior bolts and no one wins. In the words of Newt Gunray, we should not have made this bargain. In Vandal Scandal, we come along with the Snorks to find All-Star and friends throwing a frisbee around, and Aki is going after it, and there's another public meeting of all the Snorks of Snorkland as the governor prattles on about something, and Aki interrupts the gathering. Just out of curiosity, how many meetings do the Snorks attend a month with the governor? Is there a mayor? Is he calling town halls too? Maybe that's all the Snorks do, take meetings and deal with underwater politics. That's some good Saturday morning right there. So, Governor Wetworth realizes that Aki belongs to All-Star because his whining son Junior tells him. Turns out, they're all assembled to open a bridge, but they're not. Instead, he's there to declare it Tuesday. And then the First Lady of Snorkland declares free clam burgers for everyone. And the crowd clears out to get their burgers, wanting to stick it to the government. But there's no such thing as a free lunch. The government is going to raise taxes to support building a monument. As the monument is revealed to be a tribute to Governor Wetworth himself, we see that it's already been vandalized. The governor is a laughingstock. Junior is quick to say he thinks All-Star and his gang probably did it. Casey tries to capture this momentous event by drawing a picture of the governor, but her red crayon is missing. 
All-Star and his gang go to Dr. Gallio's lab to try and solve the crime. Guess it's better if a bunch of kids can solve a crime because the police have something better to do. The solution is to make the governor happy and All-Star decides to clean up the tagging. Except he won't. Aki uses all eight arms to scrub the monument clean. Patting themselves on the back, All-Star walks Casey home. Daphne offers to walk Demi home, and Tudor, poor Tudor, walks through the dark all alone and is never heard from again. Just kidding, he walks home and finds Casey's missing red crayon. Tudor decides to draw on a clam and is caught by Junior, who now believes that the mute toot is the daddy defacer. Shall we say he was caught red-handed? Oh, you clever writers of the 80s. Junior is going to take this weak proof to the council, who is sure to sentence Tudor to 20 years in the mines for defacing the governor's portrait, because everyone gets 20 years in the mines for doing anything. Forget it, Jake. It's Snorkland. The governor goes before the council, presents the proof of the red crayon, and Tudor is all but sentenced based on hearsay and weak evidence. But Tudor has run away, writing his innocence on a clamshell. His parents appear before the council on his behalf, heartbroken. With Tudor running away, it looks as though he's guilty and running from the law. Back at Galio's lab, Allstar and the gang need to find Tudor to prove his innocence. Allstar wants to use the silverfish to find his friend. Galio says that the silverfish hasn't been tested, a claim he made when they tested it in the first 15 minutes of the show. It's 20 minutes into the show and continuity is out the window. Out in the wild, near the limits of Snorkland, Tudor is riding a seahorse and carrying a hobo's bindle, because he ran away in the 1930s. He's trying to get to a huge crab shell, but falls off his horse when he gets spooked by the crab. Looks like Tudor falls into a void, crying out, help me, help me, in a style straight out of The Fly. The suspiciously spooky council declares Tudor guilty. A cop comes in and says that another mustache has been drawn on the governor's portrait, proving that Tudor is innocent. The kangaroo court is adjourned. On the Silverfish submarine, All-Star and the gang rush out to find their friend. They release Aki at the big shell to scout around for Tudor. When Aki returns, he's only got Tudor's bindle, and this turns into a very special episode to teach children about death. No, wait. Tudor is being snapped at by a crab. He avoids the claws that could snap him in two. Tur. The silverfish dives deep and they see their friend. All-Star fires shells at the crab, causing the cliff to collapse. The crab goes over the edge, but it looks like Tudor might follow. The silverfish rushes in, saving Tudor at the last second. In a tear-filled homecoming, Tudor is reunited with his parents. It's pretty funny that snorks can cry underwater. Casey tries to capture the homecoming in another drawing, but her new red crayon is missing. Even worse, All-Star's sister, Small Star, is missing as well. No, she's not. She's dangerously climbing up the Wetworth Monument with a red crayon in her hand. It wasn't an act of vandalism to protest the government or to enrage the Shadow Council. It was just a stupid baby having fun. The governor forgives Small Star and tries to give her a kiss to show there are no hard feelings. But once close enough to the governor, Small Star draws all over his real face with that red crayon. Everyone laughs at the governor, forgetting that the governor can launch nukes and annihilate them all. Because the 80s. The end.
Over the course of the Snorks, the series managed to produce its fair share of great episodes. Of those episodes, here are the three the fans remember and celebrate the most. Number 3. All-Stars Freshwater Adventure and Dr. Strange Snork This early Season 2 episode found All-Star getting trapped in Haley's current and encountering another breed of snork, the freshwater variety. These snorks have two snorkels on their head to distinguish them from their saltwater counterpart. The clever Halley's Current would have been a reference to Halley's Comet, which passed through the solar system around this time. Dr. Strange Snork finds the title character, who happens to be Dr. Gallo's brother, steal All-Star's invention at the science fair and uses it to try and control Snorkland. Number 2. A Snork on the Wild Side and All-Star's Double Trouble the premiere season brought this gem. The first segment introduces wild snork Jojo to the collective. Jojo is the snork that time forgot, in the same vein as Tarzan. Double Trouble tells the story of attractive Samantha Water who comes to Snorkland. She captivates All-Star who asks her out. The problem? All-Star already has a date with Casey at the same time and must attend them both. Seems to be ripped right out of Three's company. And number one, a starfish is born, and who's got the snorks? This fourth season entry introduces Neb, a starfish that fell from the sky and must be returned home. The last segment, Ooze, finds a huge, evil green jellyfish named Ooze that terrorizes Snorkland. And there you have it, the top three episodes as voted on by the fans. Was it a phenomenon? Well, it lasted four years on Saturday morning. For this competitive real estate, four years is astounding. Most of the other shows in the 80s ran for one or two seasons and were gone. The Snorks stuck it out for four years and left the airwaves after 65 episodes, totaling 108 segments. In terms of animation, 65 is a magic number. The Snorks now had enough stories to be syndicated. They could be cycled through on Saturday mornings again, but they would likely be added to programming during the week. 65 episodes meant that they could run 5 days a week for 13 straight weeks without a repeat. The show could be sold into syndication and those running it could repeat the show 4 times in 1 year. In terms of the phenomenon question, I would have to say no. I feel like the Snorks were already in the shadow of their older brother, the Smurfs. When comparing any Saturday morning show in the 80s against the Smurfs, nothing will really measure up. However, if you look at each show and then look at the merchandise it spawned, you get a better look at their popularity. The Snorks generated some merchandise, mostly in the form of plush and PVC characters. They were on lunchboxes, there were t-shirts, there was even a board game from the makers of Uno no less. But there was no Snork cereal at the grocery store. There were no color forms or shrinky dinks. The Snorks didn't even measure up to get a McDonald's Happy Meal. Sure, there was a tie-in at Burger King, but that was the second place prize. But you know who did have all these things? The Smurfs. Would the Snorks have enjoyed more success if the Smurfs never existed? Would the Snorks have been a thing if the Smurfs hadn't paved the way? From all I can gather, probably not. Without the Smurfs, there is no need for the Snorks. After all, the Snorks were created to be an in-house knockoff of the Smurfs by the producers of the Smurfs. 
They were introduced to Saturday morning to ride the coattails of the Smurfs' success and give greater merchandising opportunities to Hanna-Barbera and NBC. On December 2nd, 1988, the Snorks ended their run. I can't seem to find exactly why. It either dropped in ratings or NBC was just glad it hit the 65-episode mark. Either way, it didn't make the 1989 schedule. After these messages, we'll look at what happened to the creator and actors and explore the legacy of the Snorks. Look, I got a McDonald's treat over here. Come on. This year, help us make Halloween safe for the kids with McDonald's trick-or-treat certificates. Just buy a $1 book filled with 12 McDonald's dessert goodies to give as safe treats, and you'll get our jack-o'-lantern for the front door. So kids and parents will know where to find McDonald's safe treats. There's another one. So buy McDonald's treat coupons and get a jack-o'-lantern for your door. Trick-or-treat! And make this Halloween a safe and happy one. It's coming soon to your video store. Watch this. The Empire Strikes Back. The ultimate battle between good and evil. Don't wait until it's too late. Reserve your copy at your local video store now. Nutty Baby Ruth. Crunchy, peanut buttery Butterfinger. Fresh and tasty, just for you. Guaranteed. Baby Ruth and Butterfinger. Fresh, guaranteed. In the years since the Snorks went off the air, none of the main cast have died. The show's creator, Freddie Munnickendam, I believe, has passed away. All the articles I found on him were vague at best about his past. Michael Bell continues to perform as a voice actor. While the Snorks were still going strong, Bell found plenty of other jobs. He was part of the main cast for Jem, G.I. Joe, and the Transformers. In fact, he's still a part of the Transformers family to this day. Bell bides his time voicing TV shows and video games. In 1991, he was granted a patent for the Grayway Rotating Drain, a system that recycles sink and shower water. In addition to that, Bell is an animal activist and godfather to actor Steve Gutenberg. Brian Cummings, while a relative newcomer at the time of the Snorks, is a polished pro. In the years since, Cummings found work as Doofus Drake on DuckTales. He also appeared on The Wuzzles, Pound Puppies, and more recently, Sophia the First for Disney. He's been married to his wife, Carla, for some time. They have eight children. B.J. Ward is still active as an actress. She continued to partner with Hanna-Barbera. She voiced Velma in several Scooby-Doo specials. She created a one-woman musical called Stand-Up Opera. If her professional career wasn't impressive enough, she's also a licensed aviator. In 1995, she married director Gordon Hunt. The two remained married until his death in 2016. Ward, by way of Gordon Hunt, is the stepmother to actress Helen Hunt. Nancy Cartwright took to voiceover work with Gusto. She found success in Rugrats, The Animaniacs, and, say it with me, The Simpsons. 
She's been Bart Simpson for the past 30 years, and there is no end in sight for the family from Springfield. Cartwright is also a painter, sculptress, and philanthropist. She also co-started the More You Know Drug Alliance. Barry Gordon remained in voice work and will forever be known as the original voice of Donatello and Bebop on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He is currently the host of NewsRap. Gordon and his wife Gail have two children. Frank Welker is still acting. Like Michael Bell, Welker is a part of the Transformer family and voices Megatron for movies and TV. He was the original Fred Jones in Scooby-Doo Where Are You? But more recently, he voiced Scooby-Doo himself in the CGI movie Scoob. Rob Paulson, like Barry Gordon, fell in with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles voicing Raphael. He would later voice Donatello on the Nickelodeon Ninja Turtle series and reprise Raphael during crossover events. As if being a Ninja Turtle wasn't iconic enough, Paulson was also Yakko and Pinky on The Animaniacs. Those are roles he'll reprise on the Hulu revival series. In 2016, he beat throat cancer and wrote a book about it. He donates money from signing autographs to the charity's Wounded Warrior Project and Operation Smile. So what is the legacy of the Snorks? In the 1980s, there were 117 new shows that aired on Saturday mornings. So many came and went during this time. The ones best remembered may be the most popular ones. If the Snorks hadn't been among the popular shows, it would not have lasted for four seasons. There must have been some sort of Smurf vs. Snork debate on the playground. There must have been those kids who identified with All-Star over Hefty Smurf. The kids who liked the Technicolor variety of those undersea creatures over the bland blueness of the forest. So again, what is the legacy of the Snorks? Well, it's still a part of pop culture. Maybe they're not as well-known globally, but they are remembered by those who found them at some point. They were spoofed on Family Guy and Robot Chicken. They've been mentioned on Mystery Science Theater 3000 several times. They were once a knockoff and a knockoff. Yes, you might remember that a Snorks episode was shown in the 1988 movie Mac and Me, a ripoff of E.T. I can find about a dozen other times they were referenced. What I find is that the Snorks are a sort of punchline to the joke being told, but who knows what kind of nostalgia this can bring up to viewers of a certain age. Surfacing in pop culture means they are still a part of it after all these years. So, I guess the legacy of the Snorks is that the B-Team can sometimes win. The Snorks were backseat to the Smurfs, just as Mac and Me was backseat to E.T. Does this mean that those shows are any less loved? No. Sometimes people want a less serious thing to like. It is possible that there is an audience for everything because we all have different tastes. It doesn't necessarily mean those things are lesser in value than the mainstream, just lesser known. Do you like the Snorks over the Smurfs? Let me know about your Snork memories. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.
thank you for joining us at the Saturday Morning Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you get your episodes. If you'd like to drop us a line, please write to satmornpod at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at satmornpod. If you'd like to support us to create more of these things, find us at patreon.com slash saturdaymorn. Supporters will get extra content and a chance to win behind-the-scenes prizes and given email priority. Do you have any vintage Saturday morning memories? Email your story and we can read it on the next episode.